Mitch and his dad podcast episode 32. I am Mitch and with me as always is my dad. Yeah. 32 episodes, my lord. That is, that is something wrong with that. That doesn't sound right. Yeah, I also have to, during, uh, I was just telling you that I'm going to be taking um, a week off of work uh, as of Friday. Um, I should probably set up the actual Mitch and Dad website so that I can have all this stuff under our, on our side of things and kind of keep track of it that way. Oh, you're going to have a Mitch and his Dad website? Yeah, it'll just be, it'll just make it so that the everything's sort of faster and uh, I don't have to worry about a third party service, you know, going down or anything. And that, that happens from time to time. So, Well, is this website going to be able to take emails? Of course. Yeah, you could be dad at mitchanddad.com. Yeah, so that way people could email or something. In fact, I think it's just mitchdad.com. Let me check which one I grabbed real quick. I haven't set it up yet, so I mean, it doesn't really matter, but I was just kind of curious who I am. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just MitchDad.com, actually. And uh, it already downloaded, it already grabs like up to episode 26. So I'll just have to grab the rest of them. Shouldn't take too long. But anyway, um, so uh, how was your trip to Mississippi? Well, that was the, that was the topic of the week for me because I. Uh, it was uh, really nice because I, I haven't been with all four of those children and grandchildren. Actually, it's five. Five people. Okay, so you got Tommy, uh, my, my half-brother Tommy. Tommy, the oldest. Sheila. And Sheila, his sister. Sheila's daughter. Yeah, and, and then, then the two grand two Tommy's uh, two kids. Kelly, uh, and, Kelly Robert. and Robert. Yeah. And Sheila's daughter is Ellie. Hmm. Okay. So we got five people, but I haven't been with those five all at one time in about five years. <clears throat> so it was it was a big event, and I stayed at Sheila's brand new big old house. Wow. What's and that uh, like? she's got plenty of room there. <laughs> yes. And uh, the kids stayed overnight as well, the grandkids. Oh, and Tommy's wife was there, Celeste. Oh, I didn't know he got remarried. Yeah, and... Uh, How long has he been married? Oh, jeez, I don't know. Over a year, I'm going to say, maybe two, maybe two years. You hadn't met her prior to this? I met her, I'm trying to think how many times I've been around her. I think this is my third time being around her. I was at a ball game about a year ago. And that might have been my. That might have been the only time I was around, to come to think of it. Hmm. I went to a ball game. They had some kind of tournament thing, and it was pretty close to Baton Rouge. And I needed to go to Baton Rouge, so I was able to go to Baton Rouge and stay there and then drive over to the little town outside of Baton Rouge that they had the tournament in. Anyway, yeah, he was Tommy was there with his with with her then. So that, I think that's the only time I'd met her before that. And um, you didn't go to their but, wedding or anything, huh? You didn't go to their wedding though, huh? Well, I don't even know whether they had like a formal wedding. I don't know. I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not tuned into these things. I mean, he's you just, he's your son. I mean, I just figure. Well, I mean. If I ever make that terrible mistake, I hope well, you show up Well, if you were it. getting married, it would be a much bigger event. I mean, he, he didn't make this into a big event. Oh, okay. So. All right, all right. I'm sorry. You know, right. 
got two grown kids in college. One of them's out of college teaching with a master's degree. I mean, he's not really like a newlywed type person. So, all right, okay. Yeah. It was my. It wasn't because of me that there was no celebration. I got you. I was just curious. You know, I'm just just so, checking. Uh, like I said, if I ever make that mistake, I just wondered if I should send an invite. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love weddings. I hate them. I love everything to do with that kind of stuff. I, I actually wish I had developed some sort of business around weddings. I, I like weddings. You could. You could be some sort of uh, financial I could advisor. I could be advances. I've had a number of weddings. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> why don't you? I mean, why don't you get involved in some sort of financial aspect of it, where you go like, you know, save money doing this, and I'll look over all your expenses and see where we can cut some money out. Yeah, of this. Guy that, there's a guy I know that does that. In fact, and uh, I just I don't know. I never never got linked into it. Mm-hmm. But um, I, don't know. I just like all the whole idea of weddings. The same way I like, you know buying clothes for women you know and stuff like that right right i have a weird i mean as much as i hate weddings and proposals and all that i mean like all everything wedding related i just hate um for some reason <laughs> i cannot i don't know how you could hate weddings so. i'll get into that in a minute um try out <laughs> some new material on you that i've wrote so that i haven't really worked on but uh it's got weddings in it. The yeah, new well, it's about yeah, it's about weddings because it's wedding oh. season. But uh, sounds funny right off the bat before you even say anything. Well, good. Uh, but I do have a I do have this weird. I may have mentioned it before in the podcast. I have this weird thing where if I watch videos uh, of a proposal, no matter how, even if it's in a commercial, and it's clearly a you know couple of actors or something, I'm I just get teary eyed. I just I immediately choke up. Really? Oh yeah, I can't do it. For some reason, proposals just—I—I uh, I just go—I go soft. You just, mean like when a guy's asking to marry him and all yeah. that, to give the ring out and everything? That, yeah. that really turns you on, huh? Uh, well, I wouldn't—I wouldn't go. I means a different <laughs> thing to us in this day and age than it did to you, I think. But I uh, know it—it just makes me go very—I uh, get very emotional. I, I don't know why. It's the stupidest thing. You know, we moved off the wedding of the weekend. I wanted to cover it a little bit. There was a wedding this weekend? No. Did I say wedding? Yeah. The visit I had to Mississippi, I wanted to kind of cover that a little bit. Okay, please do. Sheila lives in a new area of of Jackson, Mississippi, which is the place where your mother and I had our wedding. Oh. And uh, she lives in what's called Madison County, which is actually north of Jackson and it's a real beautiful heavily wooded pine tree area and uh she lives in a gated community and her house has glass all the way across the back and the view out the back is the swimming pool which is down below you walk down some steps to get there and then below the swimming pool is this big lake wow so it's like an awesome just view that you have in almost any part of the house. If you look toward the back of the house, that's what you see is that, is that big lake and everything. So, uh, I was really impressed with the, with, with the house she chose. And it's, it's just her and the daughter, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's a big, and house. It's, you know, big house. Absolutely. And it's five bedrooms. 
but uh, she uh, doesn't have a very uh, comfortable, and she doesn't skimp on anything. You know, she's got all everything is manicured and taken <laughs> care of. She's got the pool guy and the landscape guy and the grass guy. I said, how come the grass guy can't do the landscape? That's just about to ask first? that. Yeah. No, no, no. She said the grass guy is strictly a grass guy. I don't think <laughs> touch it much. So the landscape guy is he doesn't lower himself to do grass. You see what I'm saying? Oh, I see. So the grass guy, you know, is just kind of a guy that comes around and mows grass. So anyway, wow, <laughs> it's kind of like that. So uh, now Sheila has a has an interesting office in Jackson, which I've been to a number of times in the past. But it's a it's a huge two story house. I don't know how many rooms there are in it, but there's many. And she owns that house, and it's an office built. You know, she uses it as an office. You know, she's got upstairs people and downstairs people, you know, like that. Okay. So it's pretty, I don't know. She's, she's right by the state capitol, you know. There's a lot of other law firms that do that same thing. You know, they buy a house and use it as an office in that area of Jackson, the sort of downtown area. Uh, <clears throat> your mom and I... When we moved to Jackson, we put all our belongings in my car in her Volkswagen, and we we uh, you know uh, what is a caravan type driving down a freeway from New Orleans to Jackson. Mm. And your mom had never been to Jackson. Oh wow! I had gone up there and picked out an apartment and all that. And we stayed in these apartments that were brand new. No one had ever stayed there. And they were, in fact, filming a movie with uh, Keith Carradine. David and Carradine's brother or something? Or father? Son. Or? Not David Carradine's son. Uh, the, the original John Carradine was the father. This guy, Keith Carradine, and you know all those Carradines were all sons of John Carradine. It was three of them. Oh, wow. There's three Carradines okay. besides the father. Uh, anyway, he and uh, Bruce Dern, if you know who that is, no. uh, they were making a movie. Well, you know Dern, the woman actress? What's her name, her first name? Laura Dern? Laura Dern. That's yeah. the daughter of Bruce Dern. Oh, okay. And the, his wife is also an actress. Uh, anyway... Uh, well, I had picked out these apartments, and what it was, they weren't even open yet. They were, like, brand new, right on the freeway between, you know, right as you get into Jackson. And I just kind of stopped there not knowing, and the guy tells me, we're not going to be ready to rent apartments for about 90 more days. It's not quite ready. We're going to – we got this film crew that's making a movie up here that's staying. So I I, I just kind of song and danced the guy for about an hour. He was real busy in and on, on and off the phone, running around, and I was waiting for him and all that stuff. He says, he says, I tell you what, would you take a front unit? I said, absolutely. So he he, <laughs> I signed a deal to take this front unit number twenty four. It's right in the front of the complex. And that's the one we moved into, and the only people living there were the film crew. <laughs> when we moved there, and I mean, it was like a hundred and something people there. I mean, this film crew was like, you know, everybody, all the actors, actresses, all the people that handle all the lights, all that kind of stuff. Now, do you remember the name of the movie? Uh, you know, 
I remember it some time to time. It was a Civil War movie about the Civil War. And uh, if you can look up Carradine, and I always get mixed up as to what Carradine it was. You said Kevin Carradine earlier. Oh, I think Keith. I think it's Keith Carradine. Oh, maybe you did say Keith. I remember it had a K. Let's try Keith Carradine. This would have been 1975? Something like that, yeah. All right, let's see. Uh, oh gosh, I know this guy. Yeah, yeah, he was in. Um, he's been in a lot of good stuff. I liked. He oh was... yeah, but do you see that? Do you see a movie like about a Civil War kind of war movie? Dexter. Um, that's what I'm thinking of. He's in Dexter these days, or he was most recently. He was in Dexter's. Was he? Yeah, he was the he was the like the uh, the detective. One he of was... the guys they bumped that he bumped off. No, no, he was the detective that was. Oh real... yeah, that's right. Yeah, I that... remember. That uh, Dexter's real life Damn. wife was was uh, was dating in the show. She that's was, him. So I'm we said we said what seventy four. I don't know. I don't know the year, but it's it got to be somewhere in that area. Nashville. I don't even know Let's that see. it's Keith Carradine, but it's one of the three Carradines. Thieves like up. Two convicts break, break out of a Mississippi state penitentiary in uh, nineteen thirty six. No, that's the that's the. The plot. That's not it, though. It's uh, a civil. Okay, civil war. Nashville. Over the course of a few hectic days, numerous no, air-related not individuals. Not Nashville. I know the name when you say it. Hex. Idaho no. transfer. No. Uh, Lumiere. Welcome to L.A. The Duelists. You know what? It might be a different Carradine. Yeah. Oh wait. Set during the grand sweeping Napoleonic age. No. And the French army insults another officer. Oh no, that wouldn't be right. I just saw it. I just saw a war photo, so it looked like. Does it tell you the other Carradines or anything? Uh, I mean, other. Uh, let's see. Brothers. Uh, I'm sure it was Keith, though. Uh, let's see. I'm going to look up Keith Carradine and see if there's. What year was the Thieves Like Us? Uh, let's see. It was in the early 70s, uh, 74. Well, I tell you, that... Two convicts break out of a Mississippi State Penitentiary. I mean, that's why I'm thinking, because it's Mississippi, 1974. It's got yeah. Keith Carradine. Yeah. I mean... That's pretty close. Uh, the youngest close. of three falls in love. Let's see. Uh, he's the youngest? It says, well, this is the plot of the film. Okay, because Keith, I think, was the youngest, and he is whoever was the youngest was the one that was All at right, this. The thing. Carradine family is what I'm looking at. Robert Carradine, uh, born 1954. Keith Carradine, born 1949. Christopher Carradine, born 1947. David Carradine, 1936. So he would not be the youngest. The youngest looks like would be Robert Carradine. Well, it wasn't him. It was Keith. It was definitely Keith. All right. Well, then maybe it's that. If, if that's all the brothers, then that, that it was Keith. I feel like it's got to be this thieves like us. It takes place in Mississippi in the nineteen thirty six Mississippi. Yeah, but like, did I have a list of all his movies? Yeah, that's like, what I'm, oh, yeah. well, just don't even tell me what they're about. Just ramble off about four or five of the names of the movies, like starting with the first movie. Okay, uh, let's see. I'll go with, uh, well, these are all TV. Hold on. TV, TV, TV. Uh, Emperor of the North. No, keep Idaho, going. Idaho Transfer. Uh, Hex. 
No. Antoine and Sebastian. No. Arrivano Joe E. Margarito. No. The Godchild TV movie. No. Nashville. What year is that now? I know, well, no, it's not Nashville, but how far are you in years? 75. These are all around the mid-70s. Okay, so, keep going. Uh, You and Me. No. Lumiere. No. Uh, not, Welcome to L.A. Seemed like it was... No. See, Pretty Baby, Old Boyfriends, and Almost Perfect Affair, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The Long Riders, maybe? Maybe it came out really late. It's the Great The Depression. Long Riders. What is that about? The Long Riders. The the origins, exploits, and ultimate face of Jesse James gang. No, no. That'd be right. Uh Pretty Baby, uh, nineteen seventy eight, a preteen girl grows up in a house of prostitution. Oh, no, we're getting too far though. It's gotta yeah. be thieves like us. It's gotta be. I'm thinking that's it. Just cause Hold it says... on just a minute, I'll be right back. Alright, no problem. I'm at, there, there's one other one. It might be called the but, God, the Godchild. It was a TV movie. No, it's but, not a TV. It was not a TV movie. All right. Well, I saw the, it in the theater when it came out. Here's the the summary, though. Three Union POWs fleeing across the desert to escape both their Confederate pursuers and rampaging Apaches come across a dying woman and her infant child. No. Okay. No, that's not it. It's got to be thieves like us. It's got to be. That's what it's got to be. Because, see, what it is is that that movie came out in 74. That's the year we were married, which means they would have been making it, you know, like a year before that. Yeah. You know, that's about about right. Okay, well, there you go. So it works out that way. Anyway, so what I did (laughs) was while I was in Jackson, I ran around and visited some friends at former guys I used to play golf with and stuff. And um, I drove by the Tangle Ridge Apartments. <laughs> oh, that's the ones. All right. Yeah. And I mean, they're like slums. You know, we were like we were like living in a really nice apartment because it was brand new. We were the first people in there. <coughs> well, you know, it seemed nice. It was a little two-story, two-bedroom apartment. Hmm. And um, it's it's really torn down. I mean, it's really a mess now. But, you know, that's a long time ago. That's 40 years ago almost. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I drove around to the church where we were married. And uh, we we ended up having a house uh, when Sheila and Tommy came and lived with us after we were married. We got a house up there. And uh, it's in a real nice area now. Just, I mean, it was nice then, too. But, it, you know, it's it's an area that stayed pretty good because it's got, you know, it's got a lot of trees and it's real hilly and everything, but um, so at the at at the house we had Sheila cooked all these different meals. We had this jambalaya with the shrimp and the chicken, and the sausage. I mean, I tell you, it was it was fun. We had a really good time with it. I was trying to figure out as I was driving over there. It's a six hour drive to Jackson. So it's a pretty easy drive. Um. I was trying to figure out how I might could do a Skype from there while I was there. The problem is she doesn't have any of the, you know, like mics and that kind of stuff. You don't really need that. I mean, uh, you, you know, don't we were need the re- mic. No. Well, why do I have it? 
Well, we're if we're doing this because we're recording it, we need the best quality we can get. Oh, uh, okay, so, so I thought it's a quality. You know, if you got a headset and a mic that you have, yeah. you'll hear everything. It won't cut out as much um, because what it'll do is when you use every laptop has a mic built into it and speakers. Yeah. So if it's playing through the speakers and using the internal mic, Skype goes, "Oh, this is their own voice coming back," and it mutes that. Oh. And then when you start talking, it goes, oh, no, that's just the guy talking again. And so it'll pick it back up. <laughs> so this way we're getting almost 100% of what the other person says. By the way, are you getting messages from Skype about – it's probably Microsoft doing it. But I've been getting these update things and new stuff they want you to sign up for and, you know. Well, they're always sending those, but I mean, yeah, it'll tell you when it's time to up. Like on mine, it'll say, "Do you want to update now?" And I hit a button, it'll update it. You know, I haven't because I do know that the the plan for this particular version of Skype was to add in these like banner ads and stuff, and so I keep uh -oh. worrying that at any moment they have already put the code in there to start showing them, and they just won't tell you, and then you're going to update to that version, and then one day they'll flip a switch, and there's your banner ads everywhere. And I don't want that, so I'm holding off. This one works fine. I'm almost tempted to go back to the version before this, actually, because it seemed to have worked a little better, but, you know. Okay, to end the story about Jackson, I oh, then yeah. drove up to the very north tip of Jackson to the Ross Barnett Reservoir, which was, they had just turned the Pearl River into Ross Barnett Reservoir when we moved up there. So we used to go and rent a boat, a little skiff, like 16-foot boat with maybe a 20-horsepower little outboard motor on the back. And we would take it down the Pearl River south. And we had so much fun doing that because it was just the two of us on this nice river. And it had sandbars where you could pull your boat up and get off and all that kind of stuff. We must have done that, I don't know, two dozen times just just for the fun of it. Then we started taking fishing poles to see if we could catch any fish, which we never did. But uh, we, we, <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, it's a thought that counts. I'm not one of the great fishermen of the world, I can tell you that. But uh, anyway, every time I'm in Jackson for any length of time, and usually I'm not there very long, I'm usually going on my way to Tommy's and I stop and see Sheila for lunch or something. But uh, this was this was about as long as stay in Jackson's I've had in many many years. So it was kind of fun to uh, revisit some of the stuff that you know took place when 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 uh, when your mom and I first fell in love and got engaged and went through the year and I guess it's about fourteen months between that and when we got married. But uh, it was it was. Jackson's a nice place. It's you know it's real pretty, but it does have its problems. I could not live there because of some of the stuff that goes on. But uh, it was uh, it, it, it was fun. So that was the end. So that was the end of the trip. Now let's talk about. Uh, I got an interesting article in the morning paper. Uh -oh. If you can see this guy, he's forty three years old. Wide focus career. Yeah. yeah. Well, what it is is he's a Dallas guy, lives in Dallas. He's got his business in Dallas. He graduated from University of Texas at Arlington, UTA. And 
he makes movies. Okay. And what he's been doing is he started off by just working years ago. Just This is kind of the way I always thought people should get into movies. He started off by just doing whatever he could do, you know, with people that are making movies. You know, if they needed somebody to hold a lamp or whatever, he just kind of, that's what he did. Just kind of learning what, what, how they make movies. And now he's got this thing where he makes these short movies and he does them like serials on the internet. It'd be okay. like, uh, like you see like a five minutes of it. Right, right. Next day, you'll see another five minutes of it. The total movie might be 30 minutes, mm-hmm. you know? And he's got all these different, that's what this article's about, tells you all the different movies. You know, a lot of them are got really strange names to them. Continuum, split, Spilt Milk, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I just found it interesting to see a guy that is, you know, he's ended up, making a career out of, you know, he has his own production company and all this. And, uh, and he's local. I mean, they, you know, they ask him in the thing, why doesn't he move to Los Angeles? And he's, and he said, he, he just doesn't, he's not willing to go through what you have to go through to try to do what he does in Los Angeles, I guess is the way he put it. <laughs> well, I mean, you don't need to, I think it'd be the, I mean, he's got his whole life out, out there. So, I mean, why bother? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's what I was kind of thinking. But, uh, anyway, I just wanted to bring that up now. All right. When I get home, this card is in the mail. It's a polar bear. Polar bear with uh, glasses on top of his head. Reading reading glasses on top of his head. Reading the Wall Street Journal. Oh, I couldn't tell. It just looked like a snow mound. It says, Happy Father's Day from one of your riskier investments. Love, Meredith and the kids. Wow. Very unusual for me to get, not only not get phone calls, but to get a card. What I wanted to show you is, I'm going to ask Meredith about this because I think it's kind of gave me goosebumps. This little shot of Grayson in the hospital. You'll note the card at the top that's on the the crib. No, I can't see it. Well, you you see the little blue thing? It's got a blue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see that there's something up there. I just wanted you to see where it was. It's, It's kind of an identifier for the nurses. Okay. It says, I'm a boy on it. And then where it says name, it says Marzoni. Wow. Hey, Nelly. I don't know whether they hadn't decided on the name yet or whether Meredith being her name is Marzoni, but it's this was the baby's name spot. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a picture you sent me, but she sent me a copy. Oh, yeah, me holding Grayson. Yeah, yeah that's the same one you sent me. I mean... Yeah. You emailed it or something. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know that place that's kind of like a ice cream parlor over in Scottsdale? It's got the pink. The sugar bowl. Yeah. Well, that's yes. the meeting there. She put on the back of the car, Dad, <coughs> see if you recognize this place, Riley and Meredith. Wow. You're and that's, that's got to be the sugar bowl. With the, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no way she would have mentioned it otherwise, yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
I don't think I, I mean, I, I've been close to the Sugar Bowl many times in recent years. Uh, I haven't been in there. I wouldn't recognize that had you not said, like, you know, can yeah. you guess where this is? Then I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, and then ever? Not as an adult, no. Not as an adult. No. Well, I, I mean, I, it's not like, you know, oh, it's kid stuff. I'm just not one for ice cream. Well, uh, used to go to, no I'm trying to think of the name of a place we all like to go to. And it was an ice cream place, but it also had sandwiches and things. I, what was the name of that place? Well, I can remember it was Sugar Bowl, but. No, no, no. This was, this was right there by the mall. It wasn't in the mall, but it was uh, right around there, you know, where they, where they have all those restaurants and shops and all around. Right. Just, well, I was thinking that in my head. is like, I think there was an ice cream shop near the what later became a Denny's. Or I think there was a Denny's there back in that time, too. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I don't remember the name of it, though. I think it started. It either started with an M or a W. Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember. But it was good. They used to make the ice cream. You could watch them through the plate glass window making the ice cream. Oh, all right. Well, these days they have, you know, the Cold Stone Creamery. They had a Cold Stone Cream, but I think it's so overpriced, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but they didn't have that then. No, that, no, that no. That came no. out when I was in high school. No. But yeah. And the next thing, I want, I'm trying to go fast because I know you got stuff you want to talk to. All right. Have you been following the trial of Casey Anthony? I don't know who that is. Do you even know what it is? No, I have no idea. Okay. It's something you need to check out because they're – trial's almost over now. They're going to be going to the jury within the next week or so. <laughs> but what it is is, to make it short, there'll be people listening to this that'll, that know all about it because they're probably watching. It's pretty fascinating because it's on TV. Casey Anthony is this young girl in her 20s. I think she's 22. And she was a single mom living with her parents, with her child, her daughter. And her daughter was like two years old. And one day, she calls her mom to tell them that she lived in Orlando. That's where the family lived. And she called her mom one day to tell her that she was in Jacksonville. She had traveled to Jacksonville. And that's about a 300-mile trip. Mm-hmm. And just out of the clear blue sky, she tells her she's in Jacksonville. And then when she comes home, she tells him she left the child with a babysitter in Jacksonville. <laughs> so the I father, smell crazy coming on. Yeah, so the father goes ape, you know. He's a, he's an ex-cop. The father of the child or her father? The father of the, the, the girl, the Casey. No, the father of the child, no one knows who that is. It's, it's yeah, yeah. secret or something. Anyway, um, the long and the short of it is the child ends up missing, and the babysitter is nowhere to be found. In fact, the police decided there was no babysitter. Yeah, that's about what I figured. And then two years later... They find her, the baby's remains in this little forested area within walking distance of the house. You know, they find the skull and that kind of thing. They did the DNA on it. So she's arrested and being and is charged with murder. And uh, what it was was one of the one of the things that was interesting was in the when the baby 
came up missing and they had decided it was not a uh, babysitter thing, that the baby just was missing, they held this film of her partying. Like she's, you know, out in the, in the, making all the singles bars, hanging on men and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. bringing them home to, to the parents' house and sneaking him into the bedroom, all that kind of stuff was going on. The whole time they were searching for this baby. Mm-hmm. So it didn't, it didn't go too well with the cops and they ended up arresting her. So she has, the, the defense is, Defense in their opening statement, this is what they claim. The child died in the home swimming pool. And the father had been molesting the daughter sexually. Oi. Her father. Her father, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, this is what the defense is charging. Oh, all right, all right, okay. That's charging it. And that the father got the baby out of the pool and hid hid the baby in the forest, the body of the baby. The baby was dead. Of course, this, the, the question is always going to be asked when you say that this is what happened, is why would the father do that? Why would he just call 911? Well, that's that's not even my first question, but go ahead. Wait, what was your first question? My first question would be why wasn't she, the daughter, uh, the, the mother of the child, freaking the hell out immediately? either over the sexual uh, uh, allegations and or her child missing. Like, why well, did she cover for her dad so all of this is All of this is what makes the evidence so overwhelming that she's guilty. Right. I, I'm just saying that's my first question. Second question, of course, is what you're talking about. Yeah, so the, the, the motive, there doesn't seem to be a motive. Now, what's strange is this is... Nobody knew that this was going to be the, def- the defense, that this was going to be what the defense announced that the opening was was going to be what they proved mm-hmm. problem is as you watch this trial and i usually watch the recap <laughs> at night on uh hln and uh, it's kind of a highlight thing the thing is they've done nothing to prove that part of it about the father and the the swimming pool and all of this stuff they have found this guy who was a meter reader, and he's the guy that actually found these bones in the woods. Okay. And they're trying to say that this guy moved the bones, that he actually had the baby, the remains of the baby in his possession. And he's the one that put them where they ended up. And he was trying, because he's been paid all kind of money by different news agencies to, you know, like, the Today Show paid him forty grand or something for him to go on there. So right. he, he's involved from that standpoint. <clears throat> so it seems like all they've done is try to confuse the matter. I mean, it's like it's, there's ten stories going on, and none of them are really what they claimed. I mean, they haven't proven anything or even talked about the swimming pool and the death in the swimming pool and the father and the molesting and all that, they, they just hadn't even brought up. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I mean, there, I, there's a reason for that. I mean, I figured that that's, that's pretty cut and dry. Why that is. Why? Well, because in a murder trial, you need, you need, uh, what is it? You need, uh, 
everybody has to agree this girl is guilty. Anything outside of everybody agreeing that she absolutely 100% yeah, definitely they, did it. They said at the beginning, of the, def the on the opening statement of the defense, was telling you what their belief was that happened. Okay, yeah. But they haven't done anything to prove that. Right. What I'm saying is that I th th this is like I've been reading about different cases in recent times um, just randomly because I find out stuff like this. Yeah. And what, what I'm coming to – I have another case that I just read about recently actually that I'll tell you about. But uh, what I'm finding is – and you might be able to ask Sheila about this. It seems like part of the, the new way, if you will, of, of uh, defense – is all you need to do is confuse the jury enough to where they're not 100% sure that their client is guilty. Well, that's what they're doing. And that's, that's definitely the strategy because they're, that, they're clearly it, it, just so... trying to confuse you. you know, or not you, but, you know, the jury. It's So the jury goes, well, look, we haven't heard a lot about this girl doing it. We're pretty sure she did it. All signs point to she did it. But now there's all these other... What if this happened? What if that happened to where they go, well, we can't say for sure that didn't happen. And then it gets thrown out of court and the girl goes free. Well, I guess that's the I guess that's the strategy. But I, I it's uh, it's really interesting if you care to check in with uh, HLA, HLN or True, you know, that True right, Network. Right. Yeah, they, they apparently run it all day, you know, no, the trial, but I haven't been able to really <laughs> see that. But at night, HLN has recaps. Of course, you see it on Fox News and all that, too, the recap. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. But if you check it out, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. But anyway, that's my five. Uh... Now, the story I read uh, yesterday, I believe it was, which kind of fascinated me from a legal standpoint and everything else. Was it, this happened here in California in um, oh, I don't remember the name of the neighborhood, but it was a it was a pretty affluent neighborhood, you know, uh, where it was this guy we'll call him Joe. I don't remember his name and his ex girlfriend we'll call her uh, Samantha. Don't remember her name. And so Samantha and Joe had a child, but they were exes, and she wanted full custody of the child, and she now had a husband. Or a new boyfriend. I think she had a husband. Now she was living in a house with her husband and the and the daughter, and wanted the ex out of her life just basically so she could you know keep yeah. full custody of the child and wouldn't ever have to do any visitation rights with the ex. Yeah. She called the police one day, or rather, her husband called the police one day, and said, "My wife is tied up to the bed. She's been beaten and uh, <laughs> bloodied up, and she's she's all messed up." Jeez. He immediately said. Not come get her, not send an ambulance, let's check on her. He immediately said, within first few seconds of the phone call, over and over again, go to the Montessori Elementary School. Go to the Montessori Elementary School, which is where their daughter w went to school. Basically uh -huh. saying, go look for the father of the child. He should be picking up our daughter right about now. We want to make sure nothing happens to the daughter or something like that. Uh, on down the line, if you will, what it came to, it, this guy, of course, was immediately thrown in jail and kept there for about three months in a solitary uh, holding cell in the complete darkness and everything else because if they let him anywhere near other prisoners, they'd just kill him because they don't, they don't do well with uh, cases where a guy is, you know, uh, accused of uh, sexually abusing his uh, ex and... Uh, 
maybe diddled the daughter, all this different stuff that the, the wife had made up, or the yeah. ex, I'm sorry, the ex had made up. Uh, finally, what happened was he, he kept making his case for, like, what he did is he went to the school to get his daughter, and uh, the daughter was doing some after-school activity or something. He said, all right, I'll come back in an hour. So he went across the street for a donut, but they didn't have a uh, debit card machine, so he went across the street to the bank, pulled out money, went back to the donut shop, bought a donut with cash, ate the donut, then went and picked up the daughter. So they were like, well, then there's going to be security camera tape, and there's going to be witnesses that can testify where you were at. Now, the wife had cla- or the ex had claimed that this happened between, let's say, I think 12 and 1245 or something like that. Yeah. And, and now this guy lives in Vegas, so he went from the Burbank airport straight over to the daughter's school. And they determined that there's no possible way when he landed in, in the Burbank airport to get to the daughter's school within less than 45 minutes, much less have time to go beat up the wife and then go to the school. <laughs> so they said, well, maybe she's confused on the times. So they were trying to figure out any way they could where how could this guy do this so quickly and efficiently because the other side is – not a shred of DNA, not a fingerprint, not a hair follicle, not a footprint, nada of this guy was anywhere on the property or in the house. But this woman was vehement, like very detailed about how the attack happened and, you know, he's crazy and all this different stuff. And so he stayed in the holding cell while they checked it all out and finally they found security footage of him in the bank, waiting in line, looking bored, waiting for his cash, getting his money. His story checked out fully and completely. And wow. now he's, like, paranoid for life everywhere he goes. He makes sure that he talks to everybody he can. He makes sure that he goes, like, he'll pay for something with his credit card, like a pack of gum, intentionally, so that there's a record, a paper record, that he went to Circle K. <clears throat> like, he's paranoid now because he doesn't ever want a single moment of his life not documented because <clears throat> of what happened. <clears throat> and he's having trouble sleeping now because... Those are the hours, you know, eight hours a night where he can't account for where he actually is. So he's super paranoid. Now, he went so far as not only did the case get thrown out of court, but he went so far because of the allegations to actually uh, go to the judge and get a, a declaration of innocence, which I've never heard of. And apparently no, I never heard that either. In fact, I didn't think they did that. Right. Yeah, exceedingly rare. Apparently, like police, there's there's like police that have been on the squad for forty years have never even seen one. But this guy has in his possession, in a in a the safety deposit box at his bank that he works at, this declaration of innocence from the judge that says you are absolutely, definitely not the guy. But then comes into question who was the guy. Yeah. And by all accounts, this woman made it up because she's insane. And and. <laughs> Like seriously, all all. Well, do we know there was a guy? That's just it. There wasn't. There couldn't have been, because oh. she had all the. You know, she said she was raped and beaten, and they were like, we found zero internal trauma. She had claimed, for instance, that she broke her shoulder. There was not even a, a, a not even a bruise on her shoulder. Gee. Their theory is that she, you know, they even found on her computer that she had looked up some bondage websites to figure out how to tie certain knots, and those were the knots they found her tied in. Uh, but somehow they can't actually bring her to court to say that she filed, you know, a false imprisonment claim, basically. 
They can't bring her to court unless she flat out confesses to the crime. So she's she's free and clear. Meanwhile, this guy is like in fear of his life all the time that she might do something like this again. You know, and, and all he I mean, literally, he's got the Declaration of Innocence, which I guess he keeps on hand. He says, like, you know, even when he goes on dates with women, if they Google him, first thing that comes up is he beat and raped his ex. And Jeez. so he's like, oh, no, look, I have this Declaration of Innocence proves I didn't do it. <laughs> he's got a carrot around. Yeah. And uh, that's one of those. Uh, it was an interesting case to read about um, how that all goes down. But, you know, there was a movie <clears throat> thinking the name of it. I saw it on cable, and it was about a guy. He lived in this, like, dungeon kind of place. Okay. He was real paranoid, and he was kind of a, you know, nasty-looking guy. And it had something to do with something like that. In other words, he he was accused of something and molesting a child or something. And... They never could prove it, but he couldn't live his life because everybody knew about him. Right, so he yeah. he had to carry around with him different kinds of articles and stuff saying that he's innocent and everything. So he would carry this little briefcase around. I can't think of the name of this very strange movie. I remember watching it on cable a couple of years ago. It almost sounds like this thing, though. Yeah, well, this happened, I mean... The proof uh, of innocence uh, sheet, you know, that'd be something you'd want to have, you know. Yeah, I've never heard of a declaration of innocence. I feel like if I ever get in, top, in a situation like that, and, you know, uh, that's the first thing I'm going to be looking for. <laughs> I'm going to be like, look, uh, you know, I don't just want this thrown out. I want a declaration of innocence. Yeah, you it know, sounds like, good. Uh, I mean... It's a good it's a good idea. For everybody out there listening, uh, make sure if you're ever framed... Uh, <laughs> Declaration of Innocence, I tell you. But I, I just find it so hard to believe that they can't actually investigate the woman Yeah. in any way. Uh, and I guess, you know, the DA and stuff, they'll drop the case. And I guess there's a lot of, like, from a moral standpoint, basically what it comes down to is a lot of the times people uh, just don't want to admit they're wrong. Like, prosecutors and stuff don't want to say, okay, I made a mistake. Or I didn't look as thoroughly into this as I should have, which is basically the case with this. When you read all the the events, you go, why didn't they ever, with the first order of business, if the guy says, oh, I went here and then I went to the bank, blah, blah, I would think day one, go check the bank. But they didn't do that for almost two months. Yeah. You know, and, and it just seems weird to me uh, that that would be the case. It all really comes down to this one detective who actually, you know, did his job and made sure that... He gathered all the evidence he could and, you know, considered all the facts. And I just think, um, and, you know, the DA people are like, you know, you can drop this. And we figured out that it wasn't him. But they won't go looking into the woman. I just think that's kind of um, fascinating. But anyway, uh, morbid stuff. I, I want to talk about something more, more kind of philosophical, if you will. All right. Or life stuff. Um, I had I had presented a question to some friends of mine last night online just sort of an open you know hey everybody respond to this i have you know i like to poll people about stuff or i said do you really like your job or do you tolerate it because it affords you the lifestyle that you're living 
And a friend of mine said uh, her response was, um, I think it's probably like marriage. There's going to be some days that you really, really like it, other days that you don't. But for the most part, you're just going through it because it's better than the alternative. And I said, I feel like that's sort of settling for mediocrity. You know, I think if you really like something and you're very passionate about it, then then you you know you really are excited about the thing. And she said, I don't I don't think that passion lasts again like the marriage thing. And when she put it that way, I thought you know this might be the answer to why I am the way I am. Like because jobs and marriage are very similar for me in that. Like, I don't have a desire to actually have either one of them. Well, certainly not the marriage, but uh, maybe that's it. Like, people just kind of, they, they go through motions in life because they're like, well, it's this or I'm alone, you know, or it's this or I'm broke or it's this, you know, whatever. So they're just putting up with it because, you know, it's better than the alternative. And they have what they call small victories, if you will. Like, at the job, you go, well... I'm getting, you know, I'll stick with this job, I'll move up the corporate ladder, I don't really care for it, but whatever, in a year I'll get a raise, and then I can buy that new HGTV, and I can watch sports on the weekends, and and they take solace in these temporary moments of happiness, and, like, that's good enough for them. I, I don't know, that's sort of the, the mindset I was going along once she said that. I started thinking, that makes sense, I think that's probably what people do, but I don't I don't know, what's your what's your take? Well, for one thing, I think you're talking about life in general, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's impossible not to have those kinds of ups and downs in your just your general life, whether you're married or single or working a good job or not. I mean, you're going to have those feelings, whatever they may be. Now, it, it, I would say this about jobs. It's kind of what you make of it, I think. In other words, if if there's something you feel like you can make important about the job because of the effort you put into it. See, most people do not work hard, okay? I mean, 90% of the people, they just go through the motions. They're really not working hard. They're really not pushing. Yeah, okay. And... The feeling that you get from trying to maximize your effort and seeing what comes of that, almost every case, something positive will come out of that kind of thing. Almost every case. You can't say every case, but almost every case. And that's kind of the answer to enjoying the job is like, you know, if you call it a passion, you could call it that. But it's it's to me, it's just deciding I'm going to do this job to the max. I'm going to max out every day. I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to try to do everything that I'm supposed to do plus something every yeah. day. And the result of doing that is almost always pretty good. I mean... In my experience, it's been, you know, life-changing to do stuff that way. And, I mean, you do learn more when you do it that way as well. Yeah. In fact, I try to instill in sales groups of people that I work with that that's the whole answer to their problems. I mean, most 
companies that have sales groups, sales teams or sales forces or whatever they want to call them. About 80% of people in that sales force are going to be gone in a year. I mean, the turnover is incredible. And it's because they don't work very hard. In other words, their job is not such that they that they're going to be policed. In other words, if it was a job where somebody was telling you all the time what to do, and you could you could go ahead and do the best you can with what it is he's telling you to do, I guess you could survive on that. I've never quite had a job like that. But in a sales setting, you have almost the opposite. No one really tells you what to do. They just expect you to do it. If you can't do it, you're gone and you hire somebody else. That's kind of the way it works. Yeah. Even in major jobs, I mean, Merrill Lynch type jobs, you know, high quality jobs, Goldman Sachs, General Electric. I mean, that's the way they do it. They, it's a turnover thing. They just figure they throw enough stuff against the wall once in a while, they'll get a star pupil come out of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I, that would be my answer to that. I mean, I don't think... Enjoying your job, to me, is related to how hard you work, I guess is what I'm getting at. I mean, that's just my own theory. And I've had a lot of jobs because yeah. a lot of times I'm working as a consultant. It's a part-time thing anyway. I mean, not part-time, but uh, the time I'm working is full-time, but, the, you know, it's a contract thing. Right, right. So... Um, Short term is what you mean. I don't have, I don't have any problem doing something to the max because I I just I'll tell you how I started with that when I was with Pillsbury back in the late 60s it was my first really good job with the company car and all that stuff and they transferred me and paid for my move and the house and all that stuff and um, it was so well organized as far as your work day goes. I mean, you had a route to run, uh, different grocery stores and wholesale accounts that you called on, and you were responsible <coughs> for those accounts. And you had to make those accounts, you know, certain ones on a Monday and certain ones on a Tuesday and so forth. Well, I decided I was going to do everything I could do physically and mentally to just, you know, make my territory the best territory. That was kind of what I thought of. And it, and it was very successful doing it that way. I mean, I, I did really well there. I enjoyed the job. I think I got to the point where I knew I would never make a lot of money at it, and that was the reason I went elsewhere after four years. But it was, to this day, it was the most fun job I ever had. I mean, it was really fun with all those products that Pillsbury had with the dough boy and all that stuff. Yeah. It, it was it was a kick. But... Um, I, I, that would be my answer. My answer is it's your happiness on the job and satisfaction you feel for it is related to the effort you put into it. That's what I think. That makes sense. I think, um, I mean, it, 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 when I'm thinking now, like every job I've had that I actually enjoyed was because there was something in the job that I considered a challenge to work at and that I... I found some sort of like, you know, miniature goal, if you will, like little goals for myself. And I want to do this and see and seeing yeah. a job well done, if you will. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's that's exactly yeah. the description I would use. You have little uh, mini goals that you're working on all the time. 
And then I get idealistic, though, and this is sort of, you know, like with you, is that, for instance, you, even earlier in this podcast, you said, I always, you know, I should have gotten into something where I was, you know, dealing with the wedding industry, or I should, or something like that, where it's like, it sounds like you'd be happier doing that in a sense. And then the obvious question in my mind, and again, maybe I'm idealistic, wouldn't be the first time, is sort of, well, why don't you? do that why, well why now you... is not the time for me to be starting something like that but i understand <laughs> what you mean well i mean even in little ways you know you start with one or two clients you work your way up i mean that's how you know i was much happier as a freelance designer and uh, i've been freelance designer most of my career and every time i do that it's i go from a job to where on the side i'm doing extra jobs and then eventually i land a big job on the side that i can actually live off of for a while and then I quit the job and I work on the side project thing or whatever as a freelancer. And during that, I pick up more clients so that when that ends or as that's going along, I always have work. Um, you, know, you know, I can't. I, I could tell you that I have some of the exact same feelings that you have when you were describing something the last couple of times we talked. The thing about <laughs> the passion you have for doing the comedy and the time it would take to do it measuring it against making a living and of course as i've told you a hundred times the difference obviously was that i had a family and to pursue what i would rather have done as a professional was pretty much out of the question although i actually attempted it sort of halfway half ass i guess you'd say i mean i wanted to play golf that's what i wanted to do right uh that's what I would relate to you wanting to be a comedian. It was it was that kind of thing. I mean, this was what I would like to do for the rest of my life is be a professional golfer, give lessons, play in tournaments, work at a country club, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was never able, as much as I dreamed about it and even tried to do it, I was never able to close that gap of income while doing while attempting to do the golf thing. I mean, I just couldn't, I just, there was no way to, I used to always, you know, make a joke out of it and say, you know, I love playing golf and I love being around golf and I know a lot about it and I'm pretty good at it, but I can't make any money doing it. Nobody will pay me to do it. <laughs> That's what I used to say. And, yeah, yeah. and so I went through a lot of the same anguish you're having. The difference is my responsibilities were totally different than yours. But other than that, the mental part of it, I went through. I mean, even when we were living in Arizona, I was 40 years old and I still mm. thought I could do that. No. There was no way I could do it. I mean, I can look at it now and say that, but at the time I was convincing myself that, you know, I still have a shot at doing this, you know, and I don't know. It was kind of weird. Yeah. But I tell you, I was sort of calmed when I finally just let that go. And mm. and that, that happened pretty shortly after we moved to Phoenix. Right. Well, I, I, just, think, I think that's probably why I, you know, I, I keep my life pretty simple is I think that I'm just sort of, I'm so afraid of ever of having something impact my life to a way that that I don't have a way out. I don't have the option. Yeah. 
Admittedly, you know, as we talked about before, I'm certainly not using all available time as that option. But I'm at least keeping it to where I can at any point just say, screw it, that's what I'm doing full time. And no matter how tough it gets, at least I don't have, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, on Sunday. Which is a pretty important person to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> on Sunday, I went and saw a show across the street from my apartment. I didn't even know they were doing shows over there. And I ran into a comedian friend of mine who uh, also has a day job. And uh, I thought he was, you know, because he does, you know, national gigs and stuff. He tours out of here and there, but not very often. But I thought that's what he was doing full time because it seems like he's always performing. And he's like, no, I have a day job. I just, you know, I get home from work and then I immediately check out where I can go to get time on stage. And he's like, I try to get up four or five times a week, regardless of, you know, if they're open mics or anything, you know, I, I go. He's like, and I'm tired and I don't, you know, whatever. And he's like, but I tell myself I'm going to do it four to five times a week. I said, if I don't, he said, if I don't do four gigs a week, I feel exceedingly lazy and like I'm doing a disservice to my career. And I'm like, huh. that's, that's the mindset I need to get into right there. And I'm like, all right. So this is a guy who does that. He, you know, he works a day job and then he, you know, goes off and does his comedy. And I'm like, all right. And I have a gig tomorrow night and then I have another one next week. I booked two gigs last night. Not open mics, actual, you know, performance gigs. Uh, and I need to start doing that. I need to, like, sit down and, you know, actually write out material that I would be comfortable performing a thousand times. Uh, usually that's my problem is I get bored of my own material too quick. And I'm like, I need to write something new. And then I'm like, I can't book a gig. I don't have any material. <laughs> I think so that I thing to, I saw on TV, it actually was built around a girl that does the progressive insurance commercials. But to me, that was the ideal thing for somebody that likes stand-up comedy. She, the stand-up comedy is the thing she really loves doing. She just can't make a living at it. So she, she's getting more gigs now that she's got the TV thing going. Of course. But she makes a lot of money making these progressive commercials. Mm -hmm. I say a lot of money. I mean, enough to live a, you know, comfortable life. Oh, I'm sure she's making well over six figures easy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean she's on TV. You can't only really flip a channel yeah. without seeing a progressive TV, uh, commercial. Yeah, And she even does it, the yeah. radio ones. I've heard her on the radio. Uh, yeah. I, I, I feel like that's the worst job one could ever have. Doing commercials? Being a regular on a TV commercial, I think, is the worst job in the history of bad jobs. Really? I do not think there's a worse job than that. Yeah. They because, make money though. Yeah, but the problem is first and foremost, well, you you get the you get only pretty much only the bad things about a celebrity and almost none of the good things. Insofar as okay, if she walks down the street in your town, you go, "Oh, look, it's that flow lady from the insurance commercials," right? That's what's what you think immediately. Yeah. The people who come to see her comedy they go it's that flow lady from the insurance commercials so you're instantly recognizable there goes your privacy <laughs> that's right off the bat uh secondly you're not i mean she's making good money but she'd be making a lot more money if she was say uh lead on a tv show or doing movies or anything else like that yeah so you're making a lot of money but not a lot a lot a lot of money and certainly not enough that she's going to retire on that cash and that job ain't going to last 20 years it's going to probably another two or three years something like that and then she's out 
she will always have that recognizability as flow from the insurance commercials. Getting another job in a movie or a TV show is going to be very – the longer she does this, harder and harder to do. That's the big issue that people have in TV and movies is what are you recognized at? This is why people who are on sitcoms for a very long time are dead once they get out of the sitcom. You know, Julia Lewis-Dreyfus, uh, 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 Jason Alexander, almost everybody on Seinfeld, frankly, except for Seinfeld, uh, they haven't done anything since. No movies, no TV. Because you recognize them as that Seinfeld character. And that was 15 years ago or whatever it was. I mean, that was so, well, I guess 12 well, years ago. Well, they've all tried to do stuff. It just hadn't been very successful. I think it's because, you know, it's The one guy got to something. What was the thing he did? He did something politically incorrect or something. You know, the oh, guy, no. what's his, what was his name? The big tall guy with the bushy hair. Oh, Kramer. Yeah, Kramer, yeah. yeah. Kramer yeah. did something politically incorrect or something. I mean, he's oh, like yeah, yeah, condemned yeah. for life or something. Yeah, well, he's just a, he tried to get into comedy, but he's not a he was never a comedian. He's not a good comedian. And yeah, but he, he was, said something or did something. Yeah, well, yeah, there was that as well. So he's screwed for that. But yeah, hey, I mean, he's done. I'm saying he, he yeah, is yeah, absolutely yeah. done. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, you know. It's a lot of times the child actors, for instance, a lot of child actors that grow up on TV shows, they get into adulthood, and you, again, you don't see them. The yeah. Bill Cosby kids aren't doing squat. The only one who even even does anything, and she barely does anything, is Lisa Bonet. And she didn't come along until way late, so she, she was pretty much She safe. played an angel heart. Yeah, you saw about, she's, she's you said about as much of Lisa Bonet as you'll ever want to see in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I remember her in High Fidelity. but You need to get that movie uncut. You'll probably have to get it in VHS because I'm yet to find it in a DVD, but it's probably out there somewhere. I'm sure I'll find it. But, uh, you know, that's what I'm saying is she's now recognized as the insurance lady. So if you see her, and, I, I, you know, she was in Mad Men, like, around the time she started doing the insurance commercials. Yeah, but she had a really, I mean, she would go episodes exactly. where she wasn't even on the screen. Yeah. yeah, but what I'm saying is when you saw her, you didn't. You stopped thinking of the TV show anymore. You suddenly were like, "Oh, look, Flo." Yeah, that's true. And, and that's, that's the problem: true. is that you're recognized for that character, and that character. Well, when will she not dies, what's years. going to be the first line of the obituary? Flo. <laughs> yeah, no. This yeah, you know, yeah. after years of doing the progressive insurance, the guy that did the Maytag, the Maytag man, he died last year. It was the first line. The Maytag salesman died at age 88. There you go. That's exactly my point. I was thinking of, uh, there was the guy who did the Dell commercials. Remember, dude, you're getting a Dell. And that annoying uh. guy. That Okay. <laughs> I can remember while he still had that job, I remember just going across websites. This is back when I did my internet TV show, looking for random news to talk about on the show. And came across a story where they're like, pictures of that guy at a gay bar. Which is like, who cares? But at the same time, somebody was like, oh, we should post this. Somebody will care. And somebody did care enough to post it on one of those gossip rag sites. And it was big gossip. Like, well, maybe that guy's gay. Guy can't privately enjoy himself. I live in Hollywood. I mean, I've gone to gay bars. It happens. You know, you're hanging out with friends. They're like, oh, let's hop in here. You're like, all right. You're like, oh, we're in a gay bar. Cool. My drinks are free tonight. But, uh, you know. <laughs> So that that could be the case. He could have just been hanging out with friends. He could be gay. It doesn't matter. But ultimately, what happened was he bought um, – <coughs> he got caught buying marijuana off an undercover agent. 
which Dell said, well, that 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 ruins our morality laws, so you're fired. That's the end of that, yeah. You have not seen that guy. You haven't heard of that guy since then. <laughs> That's it. Done. Finito, you'll never see him again. He but, you know, there's a lot of actors that were in commercials. Right, I'm talking, I'm literally Before talking about serialized. Famous. Serialized commercials for that length of time where you become that character, serialized. Yeah, like the Maytag guy in Flow. Exactly. I agree. Maytag, Flow, Dell guy. Now, the, the way it can work is like, for instance, Justin Long and John Hodgman were in the Apple commercials, but they were both established actors and had gigs, regular paying gigs, on TV shows and or movies long before they did those commercials. And they still okay, have careers so today. it's five minutes to nine. Oh, sorry. Huh? I said, sorry, I'll, I'll let it's you like, go. I'm starting to yawn already. All right, sorry. All right. I was just giving you my, my rant of why I would never do a serialized commercial. Well, that makes I'll do sense. a commercial. I never thought of it that way, but, I mean, that does make sense. I mean, it's it, it, there's no way that that it, whoever that girl is that does the progressive, there's no way she will ever be remembered for anything beside that. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Yep. Now, it's interesting how the Sopranos cast have been able to move on. But I would say this. Gandolfini does not get really big, nice parts. Yeah. Plays bit parts, really. I would say Edie Falco, she's moved on to different series and stuff. You know, she's doing the Nurse Jackie. She had that other one before that. I can't remember what it was, but it bombed. Yeah. But, uh, she's kind of done okay. And some of the hoodlum guys you haven't seen again, you know, like Paulie mm. and those guys. That was it. That was that was their one thing. Of course, how much mm. how much money <laughs> do those guys make for something like Sopranos for years to come? I don't know. Like yeah, residuals. Or? Yeah, because it's on A and E, and then there's DVD sales and online stuff. I mean, I don't know the residuals on that. I have no idea. Million a year? I don't know. Maybe that's too high. I have no you idea. You got to figure Gandolfini and, and Falco are probably making pretty good change off of it. Yeah, they're getting the lion's share. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but I tell you, I got you know, part for Gandolfini. I'm telling you, he could play the Jimmy Cooper part. I mean, he would win an Academy <laughs> Award. Uh, you just got to write that movie. Agent, if you would just get me to his agent. This is your job in Hollywood is to find Gandolfini's agent. Don't you have the guy? What's his name? Freddy? Yeah, yeah. I can get you the guy, but you need a script, buddy. No. What I need is the guy who's Gandolfini's agent. That's all I need. No, you need I a script. Go from there. You get me a script, I'll talk I'll talk to somebody. Uh, the thing is, a lot of these deals get made just on without scripts. It's like a talking... Yeah, yeah, but not from a guy they've never heard of who lives in Texas. Well, that's why we got to talk to Gandolfini's agent is I want to talk to Gandolfini, and he's going to want me to come out there and give the whole deal. Of course, that's how it always works. Well, I mean, you got to know somebody, so i got to know the agent. Uh, look, I'm just saying, had you written a screenplay, you know? I can't write. I don't know how to let write me, a me, screenplay. What all right, all right. Let me, tell you, let me tell you real quick before you go. Here's the Quentin Tarantino way. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino worked at a video store until he made uh, Reservoir Dogs. Actually, no, he sold a script for True Romance. That was the first thing he did was sell a script for True Romance. Yeah. 
He's working at a video store, super passionate about movies, big movie geek, etc., etc. And if you notice, once I saw this in an interview, I noticed this about every single Quentin Tarantino script, uh, every movie, rather, Quentin Tarantino wrote. Um, he said what he realized is that if you go to hand somebody a screenplay, they might thumb through it just to see if you've done the work, but they'll probably read the first page just to be nice and then never touch it again. So what he had figured out was make the first scene, the first thing on the page, the very first thing, some really weird, intricate, very funny conversation that grabs your interest to where you go, where does this conversation go? Uh, in true romance, uh, I, I, well, I think it started with a voiceover, but it was talking about, you know, true love and everything else like that. Uh, Reservoir Dogs, of course, there's Madonna like a virgin conversation. Pulp Fiction, it's the, uh, it's the robbery at the restaurant. You know what I'm saying? All these movies start with a conversation immediately that are just it's really weird, but you want to know where it goes. Yeah. So that, that you know, that's be, kind of a formula, though, because. You know these mostly women authors that are always on the bestseller list. You know, the, they write these mysteries. Mm -hmm. Well, they have a, they have that's what that's what they have. I read their uh, I got a book, old paperback book about it. They have a uh, a scheme. Like in other words, what they want to do is open with a scene that just knocks your brains out. You know. Usually some dead body or somebody falling out of a tree or, you know, something, <laughs> sure, sure. something drastic that happens on the first page. So, I mean, you know, I could have Diddy Cooper, you know, the scene of her body across the bed with her, you know, just real factual stuff. She's got the dress mm. pulled up over her head with no panties on. I mean, you know, that would be right, the open right. scene. I don't know what you could handle that. I uh, I wrote a I wrote a, a very beginning like I probably wrote five six pages of a of a of a screenplay for a TV show um, that that doesn't open on a crazy scene it opens with sort of a inner dialogue of the main character uh, not even talking crazy just sort of like giving this speech about his about his current situation. Yeah, uh, in life, not like this moment, but sort of like an overview of his life. And um, everybody I've shown it to has been like, I'm really interested to see where this goes. And I'm like, so am I. I have no idea. But I, this is what I got. <laughs> I should send it to you. And maybe you'll I think it, I think you really would like it. It's it's vulgar, of course, but it's not sexual. It's just, you know, there's some cursing and there's weird things going on. But but I think that you would if you look at it, um the way I would envision it being filmed is like that, that show Hung. The mood of that show, sort of similar to that. Oh, really? It's about, a, about a single guy, or you know what I'm saying? He's uh, a gigolo? No, 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 no. I'm just talking about the mood, the filming of it, and the the way that the characters interact. And way you pretty much just follow this one guy around. You don't see anybody else's life. You just yeah. see this one, you know, they don't. I yeah. don't think they show any scenes where he's not in it. Yeah, I've seen two or three of those. Yeah, but I, it's sort of like, I like that, that guy you, that plays that part. I can't think Tom of Tom Jane. Yeah, Tom Jane, really great guy. I met him uh, at Comic Con last year. He was very nice to me. I was helping him with this booth thing, and he was upset because he was signing at this other booth for a comic book, 
and nobody was showing up, so he had to sit there and listen to these fanboys ask him all these questions about the comic book movies he's done. And he would sit there for like an hour just putting his head in his hands, rubbing his head, going, I don't have any answers for you. I don't. I didn't write the movie. I'm an actor. And these guys, okay, in scene three, you know. <laughs> and so for our booth, um, he was going to sign posters for our booth, which is a totally separate thing. We just had a poster of him. And we said, I said to him, I said, look, I will, I will get you a line around the back of the booth and down probably a hundred people. He said, well, okay, because I'm signing at three and it's one o'clock. I said, I will have a hundred people in line by three o'clock. I had 200 in under an hour. Oh, now so let me, he was very happy with you me. Noticed, have you noticed the last two times <laughs> we've done the show thing? We haven't had as much problems, knock on wood. Yeah, it's been great this time. Not a single problem yet. I think it's the latest. What does this say? New contact request. Karen Montgomery. No idea. What? I don't know. What is that about? That that means somebody somebody, somebody found you and wants to talk to you. Uh, Interesting. Karen Montgomery, unless she sends me a picture. Anyway. (laughs) Sound like me now. I gotta uh, go now. All right, all right. I enjoyed it. All right, I'll send you that screenplay, like the first few pages, and see what you think. That would be good. The main thing I want to do is get the Dad Gum website for the sports. Can we do that? Yeah, yeah. Gonna call I'll you it Monday or Tuesday. All right, we'll do. All right, have a good weekend. Be careful. I love you. I love you too, Dad. Talk to all you later. Right. Night and night. All right, bye bye. <laughs>